Please take a Bible and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. It's page 920 in the church Bibles. Romans chapter 12. This week while I was studying the passage that we're going to look at, the Lord brought to my attention a story. It's a story about a woman named Ruby Bridges. Now, some of you may be familiar with this story. I'd like to share the story with you in the form of this children's book uh, that's written about the story. I've had to shorten it a little simply for time's sake, but I'd like to share this story with you. It's the story of Ruby Bridges. We're actually going to begin kind of in the middle of the book and on the right-hand page. And the story goes, in 1960, a judge ordered four black girls to go to two white elementary schools. Three of the girls were sent to McDonough 19. Six-year-old Ruby Bridges was sent to first grade in the William Franz Elementary School. Ruby's parents were proud that their daughter had been chosen to take part in an important event in American history. They went to church. We sat there and prayed to God, Ruby's mother said, that we'd all be strong and we'd have courage and we'd get through any trouble. And Ruby would be a good girl and she'd hold her head up high and be a credit to her own people and a credit to all the American people. We prayed long and we prayed hard. On Ruby's first day, a large crowd of angry white people gathered outside the France Elementary School. The people carried signs. They said they didn't want black children in a white school. People called Ruby names. Some wanted to hurt her. The city and state police did not help Ruby. The President of the United States ordered federal marshals to walk with Ruby into the school building. The marshals carried guns. Every day for weeks that turned into months, Ruby experienced that kind of school day. She walked to the France school surrounded by marshals. Wearing a clean dress and a bow in her hair and carrying her lunch pail, Ruby walked slowly for the first few blocks. As Ruby approached the school, she saw a crowd of people marching up and down the street. Men and women and children shouted at her. They pushed toward her. The marshals kept them from Ruby by threatening to arrest them. Ruby would hurry through the crowd and not say a word. The white people in the neighborhood would not send their children to school. When Ruby got inside the building, she was all alone except for her teacher, Mrs. Henry. There were no other children to keep Ruby company, to play with and learn with, to eat lunch with. Sometimes I'd look at her and wonder how she did it, said Mrs. Henry. How she went by those mobs and sat here all by herself and yet seemed so relaxed and comfortable. Mrs. Henry would question Ruby in order to find out if the girl was really nervous and afraid, even though she seemed so calm and confident. But Ruby kept saying she was doing fine. The teacher decided to wait and see if Ruby would keep on being so relaxed and hopeful or if she'd gradually begin to wear down, or even decide that she no longer wanted to go to school. Then one morning, something happened. 
Mrs. Henry stood by a window in her classroom, as she usually did, watching Ruby walk toward the school. Suddenly, Ruby stopped, right in front of a mob of howling and screaming people. She stood there facing all of those men and women. She seemed to be talking to them. Mrs. Henry saw Ruby's lips moving and wondered what Ruby could be saying. The crowd seemed ready to kill her. The marshals were frightened. They tried to persuade Ruby to move along. They tried to hurry her into school, but Ruby wouldn't budge. Then Ruby stopped talking and walked into the school. When she went into the classroom, Mrs. Henry asked her what happened. Mrs. Henry told Ruby that she'd been watching and that she was surprised when Ruby stomped and talked with the people in the mob. Ruby became irritated. I didn't stop and talk with them, she said. Ruby, I saw you talking, Mrs. Henry said. I saw your lips moving. I wasn't talking, said Ruby. I was praying. I was praying for them. Every morning, Ruby had stopped a few blocks away from school to say a prayer for the people who hated her. This morning, she forgot until she was already in the middle of the angry mob. When school was over for the day, Ruby hurried through the mob as usual. As usual, After she walked a few blocks and the crowd was behind her, Ruby said the prayer she repeated twice a day before and after school. Please, God, try to forgive these people. <clears throat> because even if they say those bad things, they don't know what they're doing. So you could forgive them just like you did those folks a long time ago when they said terrible things about you. The eighth commandment of love that God gives us is do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. It's stated for us in Romans chapter 12 and verse 14, and then followed up in verses 17 through 21. Listen as I read from God's word. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Jump down to verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, we're in a series in the midst of this book of Romans on the Ten Commandments of Love, which are given to us by God to encourage us and instruct us in every interpersonal relationship that we have. The Eighth Commandment, to be at peace with everyone, to overcome evil with good, is unique in the sense that although it's not first in the list, 
in four different ways in these verses, this same command is restated again and again. Verse 14, bless and do not curse. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Verse 19, do not take revenge. Verse 21, do not become overcome by evil. And certainly, simply the magnitude of the fact that Paul has chosen to repeat this one commandment four different times in four different ways in this passage gives this eighth commandment a unique emphasis that no other commandment in this passage has. And that should not surprise us. Because in every relationship, we will at times experience through that relationship sin, pain, hurt, woundedness. And if we do not know how to respond in relationships when those kinds of things happen to us, we can't have relationships. It will destroy every relationship that we have. Even those, and perhaps especially those who are closest to us, will inevitably sin against us and do things that wound us or harm us or hurt us. And it is imperative that if you and I are going to have the kind of relationships that God wants for us, we have to know how to respond when others have sinned against us. And so God says in this passage, four different ways, the exact same thing. The statement of the command in its summary form is given in verse 14. So we're going to look at that for a moment. And then the command is restated three times. And what I'd like to do is with each restatement of the command, I'd like to make one observation that we can add from each restatement to the general statement that comes in verse 14. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. The basic idea is, is that when wrong is done to us, our response is that we are not to slander, to not to harbor ill will in our heart, not to plot revenge, not to seek to punish those who have done evil to us, not to go about wanting and hoping for their lives to be miserable, but more than that. We are supposed to choose to do good to them. If they're hungry, we're supposed to try to feed them. If they need mercy, we're supposed to offer mercy to them. If they're thirsty, we're supposed to give them a drink. We're supposed to offer those who do evil to us blessing. We're supposed to pray for those who persecute us. That's what I love about the Ruby Bridges story. A 
Of course, there's always this understanding that when someone is sinning against you or hurting you, there may be some steps that you and I need to take to keep ourselves from further hurt or further pain. It was entirely appropriate that Ruby Bridges had U.S. Marshals ushering her into the school. It was not her place to stand in face of that, those crowds by herself and engage with them. But even in situations where there are some things in place to keep us from being hurt any further, there's still the opportunity to pray. And what's so powerful about this little six-year-old girl is that for those who were cursing her, she chose to bless them in return by praying for them. In fact, that's the original statement of this command that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you can't feed them, if you can't give them something to drink, the most important thing that we can do, and in every situation, we can always do this. Pray for those who persecute us. That's the overall statement of the command. Three times it's restated in Romans chapter 12. Let's look at the first restatement of the command, verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The phrase, be careful to do what is in right in the eyes of everyone, when we first read that phrase, you can get the impression that what that is saying is, you and I should do what everyone considers right in that situation. I don't think that's what that phrase means. In fact, if we look at this in the New Living Translation, the distinct emphasis of what this phrase means comes out. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. In other words, the point is, when you and I are wounded, when others sin against us, when others choose to do evil against us, all eyes are going to be on us. Everybody is going to be watching to see how we respond. When one spouse treats another spouse poorly, children's eyes are watching to see how the hurt spouse is going to respond. When one child wounds a parent, the other children are watching to see how the parent is going to respond. At work, when a coworker does something evil against you, everybody is going to be watching. At school, 
when one of the students disrespects the teacher, all the other students are watching to see how's this teacher going to respond. And the point is, is when you and I are sinned against, we're center stage. And Paul says, think very carefully about how you're going to respond when you have been sinned against because you now have everyone's attention. And it's an amazing opportunity to be able to show the love of Jesus. I have a friend. He has huge respect for his dad. One of the things he respects his dad so much for is that he watched his dad be treated very poorly by his dad's workplace. And he watched his dad respond not with cursing, but with blessing. And whenever he talks about his dad, he talks about the fact that he watched him go through this experience and choose not to take revenge, choose not to become bitter. Instead, he chose to bless those who were treating him so poorly. And my friend watched and observed and was marked by this for the rest of his life. That's what this passage is saying. Give careful thought to how you're going to respond. Our first reaction is to defend ourselves. Our first reaction is to fight back. Our first reaction is to punch back. And God says, think very carefully about this. Because at this moment, everyone is watching. And like in the case of Ruby Bridges, almost 60 years later, we're still telling her story because she thought carefully how Jesus would respond and by the power of the Holy Spirit, she responded in that way and her testimony is a testimony to God's amazing love and power and it's echoing for 60 some years. The second restatement of the command is in verse 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. The problem is, is that when someone sins against us, when you and I are wounded or hurt, or when others choose to persecute us or do evil against us, we are immediately in danger of committing the sin of idolatry. What I mean by that is we're immediately in danger of taking matters into our own hands because we think to ourselves, I'm not going to leave this with God. God's too slow. Or God's too merciful. Or God's not going to be hard enough on this person. I want to show them that they should never do this to me again. I want to teach them they've messed with the wrong person. I want to teach them to leave my children alone, to leave my friends alone, to leave me alone. I want to show them in such a way that they will never forget 
problem is God is the judge of all people, not us. And he's in that position because he's far better at judging than we are. He knows when kindness will lead to repentance, and he knows when discipline is necessary. That's the language of, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. In the Old Testament, the idea of burning coals represents God's wrath and anger in the face of sin. However, it has two possible ways in which it can be applied. The first is like the imagery of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, Isaiah says, with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Burning coals brought into a situation by God brings purification. It brings forgiveness. It brings repentance. Now there's a second imagery associated with burning coals in the Old Testament. Psalm 140 verse 10 is an example of this imagery. May burning coals fall on them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits, never to rise. And the idea here is is that burning coals represent the destruction of God's wrath in the face of sin. And what essentially in Romans chapter 12 verses 19 through 20 are saying. When you and I take matters into our own hands, we're pushing God out of the picture. When we choose to do good in the face of evil, we are inviting God into the scene. And when God comes into the scene, one of two things is going to happen. Repentance or destruction. Something is going to happen and either God is going to bring about purifying, cleansing, forgiveness, repentance. That's what we're going for. But if he doesn't, he will bring with him some form of destruction. Have you ever seen a movie uh, where maybe a a good guy's in the middle of a fight with a bad guy and the a police or a sniper or somebody is standing off to the side and says, I can't get a good shot because uh, the good guy's involved and I might hit him. That's a little bit of the imagery here. God's saying, get out of the way and let me take my shot. That's the point. The imagery is like that of a tag team wrestling. When you and I choose to do something good, we're essentially tagging God into the ring and we're stepping out of the way. 
And by faith, we're allowing God to step into the situation. And the promise is when God comes into the situation, he will either bring repentance or he will bring discipline. He will do something. That's the heaping coals on their head. It's a symbol of God's presence in the middle of the situation. And what you and I are doing when we choose to bless rather than persecute, when we choose to do good rather than evil, it is an invitation by faith for God to step in to the situation. We're simply saying, tag, I'm out, you're in. We're stepping back from the situation and we're saying, Lord, you step in. And you do what's appropriate and what's right. The third restatement is in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the observation from this restatement is simply the reminder that love has the power to turn an enemy into a friend. That by God's grace, through faith, when we choose to do good to those who do evil against us, it actually does have the power to make a difference. We have a great illustration of that here with us this morning. I've asked Dana and Chip Hobecki if they will come and share their story of the journey that they've been on and how God has chosen to triumph over evil with good. Chip and Dana, would you come and share with us? Good morning. My name is Dana, and this is my husband, Chip, and we're here this morning to testify of God's restoration, power, and grace in our lives. The immeasurable mercy I've personally received in Christ is unfathomable to me. It goes to prove that you truly cannot go too far away to be removed from God's love. God relentlessly pursued me into the deepest, darkest bondage of sin and rejoiced over me as the prodigal's father did when I returned back and received his love and forgiveness. My testimony is God's testimony. The rescue mission he made on my life has changed the course of my future and the life of my family. I've been a believer in Christ since I was seven and baptized at 13. I was raised in church and I knew the foundational facts of Christianity. Chip and I were married young and we started our family right away. From the time I was a young woman, I battled with temptation and sin. I yo-yoed back and forth for two years between living as a Christian and living as someone entrenched in sin. 2 Timothy 3.6 talks about gullible women loaded down with sins and being led away by their sinful desires. That was me. I feel in my heart a strong desire to ask forgiveness from all of you, my church family. For the years, I participated in ministry while living in sin. I knew what I was doing, and I felt the whole time that I was, as Joshua 7 speaks about, the sin in the camp. Before God rescued me, my old dead self was a liar. 
She was self-destructive and deceitful. She was an alcoholic for five years. She was the worst kind of hypocrite. Each and every Sunday, making sure she was in her Sunday best, singing with the other saints and attending Bible studies for years. She was an adulteress many times. She was impulsive, selfish, and conniving. Her sin seemed to know no bounds. Just as every good victorious story goes, there was a breaking point in a moment when I felt like Christ came crashing through the clouds to save me from my sin. Two years ago, I prayed a quiet plea, just an arrow shot prayer. God, get me out. I can't do it myself. I didn't have any idea what that looked like and if my life would be preserved. I just knew that I was buried and locked up in chains. I needed help, and I couldn't do it on my own. But there is a God in heaven, and he heard me. The night my husband confronted me with my infidelity, everything began to change. I grew up in a good Christian home, and I was active serving the Lord from a very early age. In my early 20s, as we started our family, I was involved in nearly every aspect of our local church. As our family grew, we became distracted by a great many things. The kids became active in school and sports. My work life changed. Dana began working. Without really noticing it, looking back, I was embroiled in two willful sins. I stopped going to church, forsaking the assembly, and I didn't put God first in our finances. During the summer of 2014, God got through to me. In a quiet moment, I recognized I was being a lousy father and husband. I was sending my family to church without me most Sundays, and that the obedience to God was the best example I could set for them. In a few short weeks, God stepped in. He got me into church and used Pastor Jim to address my sins and not obeying God regarding giving and not trusting in God. I asked for forgiveness from God, and suddenly I was in church with my family. We began tithing that week out of obedience because God told us to, out of an expression for trust that God would balance his accountant's books. My part was to obey, trust, and wait. At the same time, God was doing this in my life, and I was suddenly almost strong-armed by God into repentance and obedience. Things were very bad between Dana and I. There was less peace than ever before in our house. To my surprise, she wasn't overly happy that I was back in church, and it started to seem like, from the marital peace perspective, it might be better if I wasn't in church. I loved Nana, but nothing seemed to improve things between us. One Sunday, a few weeks after I started attending church and trusting God with our finances, Jim was doing a responsive, reflective reading. He asked us what the desires of our heart were, and then to give them to God in prayer. I asked God to help Dana love me as much as I loved her. That afternoon, I stumbled onto something odd in Dana's social media. It made me suspicious, and as I found out more and more, it was clear there was far more wrong than I knew. I had a very difficult night that evening, not knowing for sure, not wanting to believe, not knowing what to do. I clung to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. In the morning, God laid on my heart to call Pastor Tom Olson. Tom told me that in accordance with Matthew 18, I needed to confront Dana with this sin. I would like to say that full of faith and power, I joyfully complied with that direction. 
but that's not how it happened. I obeyed, but barely. That night when Dana and the kids came home from festival practice, I banished the kids to their room and asked Dana to sit down on the couch. I asked God to help me love Dana as much as Christ loved the church. Chip approached me with such love amidst his hurt. He told me that he chose us. He wanted us to stay together, and he hoped that I would choose the same. I wanted this fresh start at life. I wanted my husband and children included in that new life. I had believed a lie that if I was honest and came forward about my secret sins, that I would lose it all, and that it was just too much to bear. So I stayed silent until that night. About a month into recovery, which was such a hard, vulnerable time for me, God had pushed me um, about coming clean about past years of sin. I had to walk the painful road of recovery to be healed, and I wanted so badly to be fully healed. Chip had confronted me about the one thing, but there was so much more to tell him. God gave me the strength and courage to come clean and confess. The overwhelming response of love and forgiveness I was met with blew me away. Chip was Jesus to me. He said, you are my wife in whom I am well pleased. I'm not going anywhere. He had supernatural ability, I believe, given to him by God to get us through this. Today I'm filled with such joy to be able to tell you that the new, restored, redeemed me is a complete opposite of that old woman. Christ gave me a new name, and that name is Free. His daughter, friend, justified, holy saint, temple of the Holy Spirit, complete in him. Free forever from condemnation, established, anointed, and sealed by God. The salt and light of the world, and the branch of the true vine. God's co-worker, and God's workmanship. God's grace has been everywhere in this. One example that we wanted to close with is that when this first happened, Dane and I began doing a Beth Moore Bible study for 40 days. During the time we were doing this Bible study, I was desperate to show Dana my love and to help her feel good about herself. Money was tight. We were giving to God and he was providing, but we were not living in the land of milk and honey. Nonetheless, a couple of ideas came to mind. I took Dana to the mall one night, and we found a very beautiful robe, the kind of robe that made our daughters call Dana a princess when she wore it. We couldn't afford the matching slippers that night, but when I got to work the next day, there was a gift card waiting for me that was just enough to cover the slippers plus tax. A few weeks later, Dana was continuing to have up and down days as she and God wrestled about the truth of who she was in him. Another idea came to mind. I bought an inexpensive purity ring from Baker Bookhouse engraved with Matthew 5.8. Blessed are the pure in heart, it says. I conspired with the kids to get Dana to the place I had proposed to her. I got down on one knee, gave her that new ring, and restated my vows from our wedding. As we wrapped up the Beth Moore Bible study, the last day was the story of the prodigal son. It was a familiar story, but God blew us away that day with something new that he had done. When the son returns to the father, Luke writes, The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals 
on his feet. Even in the little details, God's grace was extravagant. God is great and God is good. But the realization in a moment like that is that God is not just great and good, he is love. His mercy is new and everlasting. God's power and God's grace had overcome evil with good. God is giving us this command because it works. Is that when you and I choose to respond to sin with love, we are being most like our Father in heaven. And he is free to open up heaven and pour out his extravagant grace to bring redemption, repentance, reconciliation, and restoration in relationships.